Welcome to Pixel Chasing, the podcast where we talk to fascinating people about the most exciting and disruptive trends affecting our world today. With a focus on innovation, science and technology, we engage with the trailblazers and influencers who are taking an active role in shaping our future and signposting the current winds of change. So whether you're walking the dog, looking for some background content for your workout, or are simply looking to learn from experts in their fields, there'll be something for you on Pixel Chasing. Pixel Chasing. My name is Mike Marciano and today I'm delighted to be joined by Jamie Bykoff-Brett. Jamie is a highly experienced and multidisciplined professional with a deep passion for STEM, education and talent management, social change and poverty alleviation. Over his eventful career he has held a variety of roles from frontline youth worker to managing global talent functions. In 2015 Jamie gave a TEDx talk titled Preparing Generation to Take Their Place in the Digital Revolution. And in 2020, he founded Cerebration, a social enterprise dedicated to providing equitable training opportunities and creating meaningful learning interventions with a social impact. When the pandemic struck, Jamie adapted quickly and began developing metaverse solutions to differentiate himself from other training providers and to research how immersive environments, underpinned by other emerging technologies such as Web3 and AI, could enhance their learning journeys. And in 2021, he launched MetaHub, a business specialising in the design and delivery of virtual events and conferences in virtual worlds. And in 2023, he started offering consultative services, helping organisations to incorporate emerging technologies into their business operations. This was a fascinating conversation and a very timely one, given the huge increase in awareness around AI due to the recent releases and developments from OpenAI. Uh, I hope that you find this conversation as interesting as I did having it with Jamie and that it's, it uh, starts you on a journey around learning more, being inquisitive, being inquisitive and challenging of the future of AI and Web3 in our working lives. Happy listening. Jamie, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Michael. How are you? I am well. Long time no see. How is life? Life is interesting. We live in interesting times. I think it's uh, it's so much going on at the moment um, that is both fascinating and will lead us to lots of interesting conversation, I think, today. So really, really exciting. You don't get a better segue than that. Uh, mm-hmm. For those who don't follow you avidly online, uh, who are you? And why should sure. anybody listening to what you're saying right now, despite the fact you're wearing a very cool jacket? I mean, mainly it's the cool jacket thing, okay? <laughs> if nothing else, go for it because it's got the cool jacket there. Um, so I'm Jamie Beekoff Brett. My background, um, I'll, I'll kind of go through a whole journey really, which is my background is actually I started off as a, as a youth worker, supporting young people who faced marginalisation and adversity into the employment market through education and, and training. Um, and through that, I've started working on developing a national STEM strategy across the UK. So STEM, for those who don't know, is science, technology, engineering and maths. And how do we get young people who face these adversities, who often weren't from academic backgrounds, who often were from very working class backgrounds into an, a sector that's inherently very academic and very elitist? And how do we bridge that gap? 
Um, and then that turned into working on digital transformation projects that then turned on in the next organization to working on global, global transformation project, particularly those with, with a digital theme related to it. Um, and I set up my first business the week before we went into the pandemic, which is obviously the best time to go self-employed. You can imagine. Um, it, it wasn't it wasn't a hand sanitizer business, was it? No, no, unfortunately not. If only if only. We knew it was training and facilitation, which you can imagine nobody was interested in at the beginning of the pandemic. So I started going, right, what, how can I separate myself from other facilitators um, when we come out of this? Because it's going to be a while. Uh, so I started learning how to basically create virtual reality environments and then turning that into essentially environments that match the educational content. So we're not just talking about what we're, what we're saying to someone, but making sure the environment is tailored to that person's learning. So, for example, if I was working with people on the spectrum, I could go neurodiverse people. I could go, I'm designing a space for someone who's autistic to learn in. So I can mute some of the colors. I'll make sure it's less stimulating, less overwhelming. Whereas if I'm talking about the ADHD dyslexic side of the spectrum, we can make sure there's lots of moving parts, lots of bright colors to keep people engaged and keep people in that space. And ideally, and as this technology develops, we'll be able to have those two people in the same room able to communicate with each other but perceive it differently based on their own preferences and that kind of led into well what underpins what will be the the metaverse and that involved a lot of learning about kind of web3 interoperability how can we make sure these assets can be transferred from one application to another and i've always had a fascination with ai i designed my first ai 10 years ago now uh, which is something that was very similar to Alexa that came out four years afterwards. But it was just a case of like, this was something that I was building on my home computer just for fun. And now it's kind of been built into so much of what I do from an operations perspective. I've designed five AI employees that work for me, that produce different tasks for me um, and use it as a way to kind of basically expand my business beyond just what I would be capable of as, as an individual entity. And we we said in jest before that I've never met you, and so there is no proof that you are real. And that coffee drinking might have been an indication that you are, but you could be pre-programmed. But yeah. what's interesting is that you've started from a position of trying to create a more equitable workforce, increasing access maybe to employment or skills. And what I find right now is that the Web three world and AI world is creating a, a juxtaposition to that philosophy of, of access, which is on one hand. Things have never been more accessible. But the other hand, the knowledge required to create these tools or to leverage these technologies are actually quite complicated. And the pace at which these tools are evolving is such that it's hard to keep up. So to what extent do you think that actually people like you are the main beneficiaries, switched on, savvy, uh, who can take advantage? We're actually most of the people and people often may listen to this podcast who are commercial in their day job have an interest feel that actually that that delta between the haves and the haves nots is actually getting bigger because they don't get it yeah technology has the power to be an amazing equalizer or it can magnify pre-existing inequalities and make them much bigger within the virtual world um and that's that's definitely the challenge of what we always try to uh, try to do when we're implementing new technology um if i was to give a good example of this we never thought with the introduction of social media that it would erode the ability of our democracies to function. Okay, We didn't think of the unintended consequences of being able to do this because we don't regulate technology. Technology is implemented far quicker than the institutions that are designed to govern it 
and regulate it are able to do those kind of things. So we are in a situation at the moment where these innovative technologies are coming out very, very quickly. They are powerful. They are they are impactful. They are disruptive. Um, and there isn't necessarily the wisdom there behind it. And what I mean by wisdom is there's a great quote by Edward O. Wilson, which is we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions and godlike technology. And the challenge we have at the moment is we have medieval institutions trying to regulate godlike technology. And we haven't haven't gained the wisdom that we need to necessarily wield this technology. But from an equality point of view, it really depends on how it's being able to be utilized. And you don't necessarily have to be tech savvy to be able to do that. For example, working with something like ChatGPT, um, prompt engineering is being able to just know how you want to have a machine, how to talk to a machine to be able to get the outcome that you want, um, which is you know very accessible to anyone who is able to articulate themselves in that way or understand how a machine is, is working for them. But there's other things that we can do here to support a whole range of groups. Like I've designed an AI that supports a friend of mine who's also dyslexic like I am to be able to write covering letters. And it just is a case of them being able to input the job description, input their CV and output a covering letter. And if we look at, you know, the whole employment market, a lot of our covering letters, CVs, job interviews are really based around our ability to mask as neurotypical and middle class. And therefore, we are able to use AI as an, an equalizer within that sense because they might be perfectly capable of doing the role, but they get uh, they fight, face barriers when encountering the employment process. So there is an interesting landscape that we're in at the moment of how can we make sure that these technologies are used equitably. And that's why a lot of the work what I do is trying to look at the impact of these technologies on our political, economic and social systems and how can we support people. I want to ask you a question, but you're coming through a bit broken on my headphones. So okay. I'm going to get hopefully some magic on the podcast to put like some nice elevator music in here, and then we'll mm. get back. <laughs> and we're back. So before we had some technical difficulties on my end, we were discussing around whether, you know, equal access might not be the same as equal outcome mm -hmm. uh and a point you alluded to was around our inability to keep up and i'm sure you've seen in the past some of these uh amazing dep depositions in congress where you've got experts trying to explain blockchain or, or bitcoin or crypto or web to uh some of the the, the old school generation of congress and you can see they're on just different planets and ultimately mm -hmm. it gives you little faith that we'll have the ability to legislate at pace to keep up with the changing uh technology which is becoming mainstream so does that leave you feeling excited or scared or actually can one hold both feelings concurrently in one's head because both can be true at the same time both can definitely be true at the same time and uh, yeah, there's that balancing up between our techno-utopian and techno-dystopian realities that could could be on, on the output here. Um, I mean, there's no greater example than how much we need to come from a regulation perspective and update our institutions because they weren't designed to legislate in the world that we're operating in. Like, they just don't have the capability of doing so. Best example of this is our, the UK, the par parliament that we have and our parliamentary structure has been almost unchanged for a thousand years. OK, and the other day in the House of Lords, 
they had they were interviewing an artist robot ai robot and i was like nothing ex- looks more it describes that quote better than um this idea of it being in a thousand year old institution interviewing an ai robot in it um and i think that this is where we've got such a such a conversation to be had and the reason that a lot of what i try to do is around the educational pieces that are here because we will reach a stage in a very short amount of time where the majority of people's economic contributions, aka what they do in a work, which is largely repetitive, we have a job description in place, things that AI is very good at being able to do, will be able to be matched by AI systems. The difference is it will be available on demand, any device, anywhere, anytime. And the cost of using like something like ChatGPT's API at the moment is a tenth of a cent. Um, so, you know, in a much more affordable bit, which kind of leads to the question of going, if we don't update our social, political and economic systems to incorporate this technology into it and build our societies around that, acknowledging what it's going to do to underpin it, then we're going to be in a situation where our current models don't work and we have to redesign our economic models to work with the technology that's there. And that gives an amazing opportunity to go, well, actually... We could look at this as being a very techno dystopian bit, but what does it actually mean to be human in the modern age? If you took out the work aspect, if you took out the monetary aspect and you go your job description and the identity that comes with that, what is the fundamental things that make us human beings? Um, And I'll give you one of the things that always reassures me is if you ask people, you know, if money wasn't a thing, what would you do? Most people talk about projects around community development, solving the big problems in the world, um, self-betterment, being able to support those who, who are, are less fortunate than themselves. So I think that says something about what it means to be human in the technological world, that where a lot of it can be done through AI and automation. So are, are you conceding that you feel that in a not-so-distant future, we'll, we'll be on universal basic income and spending our days playing guitar in the fields and uh, taking walks, you know, in, around lakes. And and what's made us feel human, this idea of, of financial gain for, and that being equated with betterment becomes the new reality. What's the point of technology, if not to reduce cost and labor, to give us more to- time and autonomy to do the things that we find meaningful? You know, why have we been developing these things? Why do we keep developing our technological capabilities? What What's the end goal of it all? If not to be able to go, hey, we want to be able to have a a certain amount of autonomy and our basic level of needs being met. That doesn't mean that there won't be a place for jobs and work to be able to do things, but it does leave a place to be able to go, actually, what we currently do as as work, which isn't a, a lot of what we do for work is updating databases. Most people's job is essentially updating a database of one kind or another, be it centralized or decentralized, but changing data to be able to go, this is what it was, this is what it's going to be. All things that are very easy to automate and and do from an AI perspective. But then you'll have more meaningful pursuits from a career perspective that will involve things that that AI and um, autonomous beings can't do. And that's the case of, you know, looking at being able to go, what's what's our creative problem solving? What do we need to be able to get a machine to be able to do in order to be able to support the world we want to be able to be in. So I don't necessarily think it will be playing guitars in a field, but I think it would be, hey, if you want to go and play a guitar in a field, that's your thing. It doesn't matter. You're you're 
your economic contributions are not a requirement for things to continue moving forward in a circular manner, manner because we can match it with machines. But I think what, what sort of leaves me uh, often re reflecting on is you're right in your assertion that technology has been a tool that enables us to have uh, each you know, a better future in terms of how we operate socially and, and health-wise and financially. But that, that rate of change always felt to be incremental. Uh, and what feels like in the past six months, and even if you bring in the past 18 months, we were talking about the whole, the whole Web3 world as well, uh, it's the pace at which this is happening and whether or not the majority of society have the, the skills or the ability to adapt to this new way of life at, at pace. You know, when we talk about other technologies like the internet, when the internet arrived, obviously we, we didn't know about social media and that came, mm -hmm. you know, a decade after however long it was and so over that time frame people upskilled they changed careers new things were work new, new jobs were created at, at pace with people going through their careers this feels a lot more disruptive because it's, it's happening within six months and i guess what i wonder is is the pace of it that not, not is not the outcome of what these tools can do but is the pace the problem that people who in a year's time whose job as you say was they may not have seen as data entry but to a degree it was it's them who I, I worry about because there wasn't that time to adapt. Is that a concern or you think actually as humans, what we're great as we, we adapt, that, that's how we roll and therefore we'll, we'll do it again, no problem. It's, it, I always think that there is more conversations that need to be put in place to look at the infrastructure to be able to support it. And there's a few examples that come to mind. Uh, first of all, I, I don't necessarily see the pace of change being more significant than it has been for the last 300 years from uh, an industrial revolution perspective but we need to give a frame of reference for that if we look at the agricultural revolution to the industrial revolution over 80 percent of jobs were agriculture based and then within the next 50 years that was down to 40 percent. Uh, so what did we do to be able to support people going into the industrial world we built schools we built uh, we built a curriculum we built ways to be able to help people to be able to take their place within the industrial revolution and that was at the turnover from agricultural to industrial. Now we're at the turnover from industrial to digital. We'll have to look at the new ways that we can skill people to be able to take their place in a digital economy. And what are those skills are? And that's the biggest disruption at the moment is people kind of looking at what are the skills that we need to be able to provide people with to thrive in a digital world. But we can also look at it and go, these, these rates of change could be absolutely feel quite monumentous but we have to remember there were people alive who saw the first flight Wright Brothers flight flight who also saw man land on the moon okay that all happened within the space of one lifetime um and that's you know such a significant bit when we look at how quickly the world can develop um so now we kind of need to think about yes there is a huge rate of technological change it is the beginning of the digital revolution and there is so much happening but we need to be able to, once again, re-envision our economic models, our skill models, and support people to take their place within that digital revolution. And from what you're seeing as someone who started out their career in the space in an analog capacity, uh, do you have any confidence, and bearing in mind the quote you used earlier, mm -hmm. is there a confidence that we'll be able to deliver on that infrastructure change? And one just needs to look at how schools are going to handle AI uh, in, you know, going forward. Do you think we have the ability to create an educational infrastructure that can capitalize on the changing skill set needs? Uh, and if not, what are the consequences? Yeah, it's a really good question because actually it might feel that these conversations of automation and AI are new to many people, 
But actually, I've been at conferences and 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 chatting to big industry leaders about this for over a decade. You know, since I, since I was 21 years old, I, the first one I can remember, I went to Costain's big infrastructure debate, which was constantly about how AI and automation is going to change the world. And we need to be able to, we don't understand the jobs, what they're going to look like, but we need to know that we need to skill people. The diff, the problem is we haven't done anything about it. Like that's the bit, that's my, where I lose a bit of confidence here is going, we've had these conversations for 10 years, but now it's knocking at the door and you can't just sit there and ignore it because it is going to force a change. We had an opportunity to be more preemptive about this. We had an opportunity to to change the curriculum, to to be able to skill people for that world, and we missed it. And now we're going to be forced into doing it, which is going to mean it's going to be much more disruptive. However, there are social factors around that as well. If we look at um, the pandemic and the fact that we all moved into working online at home, you know, we've had to we had to basically take it took the fear of death to be able to do some of the technological changes that maybe would have taken us an extra decade to be able to get to, and instead have been zoomed through quite literally uh to be able <laughs> to quite to, to essentially you know fulfill what we needed to be able to do during the pandemic so now we have probably leaped 10 years in technology in the same way that if we look at you know world war ii and our technological developments that came from that from being in a state of war how much all of our technological capabilities advanced within that small space of time because we needed it to um we have a similar thing at the moment and that means that there is a huge 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 amount of information and data coming through but a lot of that is not just driven by the fact that we haven't regulated it or the institutions haven't kept up but because societally we needed to advance quicker because of the situation we found ourselves in and so with that in mind if tomorrow you were handed uh the proverbial keys to the uh, uk's uh, education ministry how would you go about ensuring that we responded accordingly i mean i m- my first career was, was as a school teacher and I didn't have to worry too much. I remember once someone plagiarized an essay, but I literally I copied and pasted. I mean, it, it sounded nothing like them. It was clearly not them. Mm-hmm. I popped into Google. It came up. It was easy. Now with generative AI, obviously one can't trace that and one can adapt their stylings to, and train the, the, the algorithms to write in a certain style. But does that even matter anymore? Like, should, you be, should we be worrying about plagiarism? Should we be worrying about... Uh, kids copying the same way we don't teach people to read sundials because we have clocks and watches do we start saying hey look it doesn't matter yes you can use ai let's actually let's bring ai into the classroom and see what we can do with it let's train people in awesome prompting and see how we can actually further our intellectual capacity by leveraging the vast wealth of knowledge and insight that ai can give us at our fingertip yeah uh, I'm much more of the the latter school of thought where we go, well, we need to teach people how to use these tools. If I think about um, a lot of our, there's a there's a, a a commonly spread what I consider to be mis, a myth um, and a, a probably a bit of misinformation, which is the inception of AI will make us less intelligent. I would go, no, what you've got there is you've got a tool that can generate huge amounts of information, huge amounts of resources very quickly. Does it make it less meaningful to the reader if a human hasn't wrote it. And that's where we start to look at, you know, I we, I shared a joke with you the other day where you're like, am I talking to a real person or am I talking to Jamie? I was like, would it make the interaction less meaningful if it wasn't me? Because ultimately, if you read a text message and you see the, see a message there and it's got the information that you need and it, ha- it resonates with you, it provides something for you, 
then that's going to have as much meaning as it would if it's a person. But we do have to start looking through the ethical considerations of what these are going to be. And this is why it's so important to include people whose sphere of thought is outside of the technological world as well and bring them into the conversation. Because I think there's, we could look at some of the disorders that I think will, will start to come about because of this. Good example would be there is a AI platform that has a chatbot at the moment and it's it's called Replica. And the way that it operates is it's, it's your virtual friend. It's an AI friend. It's actually been going for about three or four years. And due to some updates in European regulation, for context, this chatbot can work with doing some more explicit kind of messages as well. So you can flirt with it, you can sext with it, all of this kind of stuff. Um, and people have been using that to fulfill a certain void in their life. And there was a change in European regulation where they're like, actually, we don't think AI chatbots should be delivering explicit messages. So it was changed within the settings of Replica to, to do that. Um, people started going through essentially rejection, you know, breakup a bit because the responses to what they were having from an AI, from what it was fulfilling, wasn't fulfilling that anymore. So they had to go through the process of like a breakup because it had been fulfilling emotional need. You know, it could be an amazing tool for loneliness. Some people, you know, have no access to, to friends, to, to people, companionship that they really want to be able to have in their life. Um, and realistically, they can have AI friends that are available, once again, on demand, anytime, any place, gives them, you know, support, is an empathetic ear. So we can, we, there's always a duality to any of this technology. What I think we have to do is come to those ethical considerations. And if it was coming to a curriculum perspective at the moment, I would go, yes, let's teach people how to be able to use these tools that, you know, show the meaning in it. But let's also teach them about the ethics behind it because they should be able to, they're going to need to shape the world that they're going into. And we need to start them thinking about the extra conversations of the duality of it. A really good example is when we started having uh, online bullying and we immediately diminished it and dismissed it. And particularly for young people going through that experience, we gave them no context. We're like, it's not doing any damage to you. You know, it's all, just turn your computer off kind of thing. And now we go, actually, this is significant. We recognize this is a huge harm and a huge problem. And we can educate young people on how to be able to make sense of this and, and that sense making. And we need to do the same thing for AI. How can we help young people make sense of what's going on in the world? You sort of hear that and you, I find myself like a pendulum swinging and oscillating between uh, excitement and, and fear, some with, with young children. Um, on one hand, I can't remember if I was reading or I was watching or listening to something, but it made a good point. Actually, in, in a way, AI is promoting us to be inquisitive again. So we've we've come to a point where actually for years we've been slaves to the feed. Everything is feed. We know we we think we know what you want. So here's read, consume, digest. And actually, we've been you can swatch people with a finger for hours, just swipe up and up. They're passive in their own intellectual explorations whereas now it's the opposite uh there was a report uh that i want to do about the metaverse in 2040 the pew report it was 200 pages copped it in i got my summary now but for that tool i wouldn't have actually got the insights and that's prompted more more questions more insights amazing on the flip side though you, you mentioned you know online bullying and you then get this sort of pervasive never-ending engagement that is both uh that we, we depend on the dopamine, we depend on the swipes. You know, if anyone here listens and goes on their phone and, and, and looks on, on their iPhone or their Android, how many times do you open your phone today? Uh, it's that constantly for validation or how many likes you get on a post or how many podcast downloads do you get? 
And when we go into the metaverse and we go into relational, uh, you know, new AI-based relationships, that side only gets scarier. And to your point, yeah, like today, there are ills in the world we try and teach against. It'll be a case for also teaching against that. But I also, in 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 the uh, in the communication reference that we had the other day, I sent you a gift for whether it's pronounced Ex Machina or Ex Machina for that amazing mm-hmm. uh, movie that re- feels really pertinent right now about the power of AI giving the illusion of emotion and then the ability to understand manipulation and what that can do. And just add to that the idea of how with what we're seeing around the generative AI world for images and audio, just scams. You know, the ability to scam people is going to change dramatically. You know, now I'll get my phone, like a random message, my, my daughter's young, but hi, hi, dad, I'm stuck somewhere. Please send me 20 pounds to help me get a cab home. Now, obviously, I know that's not true, but imagine if, not imagine, but we now know that there will be her voice and I'll believe it and there will be video. And then this comes down to a whole post-truth era. You know, if you're following the, the, the mid-journey uh, journey, what it's producing is it's uncanny and there was a great stream i saw that the day was was taking politicians and putting them in really unique circumstances and you just wonder how do we and this is actually a question leading with my, my my ramblings is how do we discern truth and reality and actually do we enter a world where <laughs> they're no longer so discernible um we have to just trust institutions that <laughs> inherently it feels unnatural to trust yeah I, well, there's a few different points there, so I would go there, and and if I miss out on any, then just bring me back to it because I'll I'll make sure to answer. So I think that the first thing is we're moving from a society based on trust to a society that's built on transparency, and that's why I'm a big believer in tying in Web three, the metaverse, and AI, and I've had people go just focus on one, just be a specialist in one, because. I'm like, no, because what happens is if you don't understand the the impact of Web3, which is blockchain based technology and the the idea of moving from trusting centralized institutions to having transparent, decentralized institutions, then you're really missing out on some key perspectives that are required for the world that we're moving into, because we can have that authentic chain that goes. Everything is monitored on this transparent, open database. You can see what's happened along the way. And you have that public record and there'll be technologies that come along that help with discerning these kind of things. If you look at from a deep fake video perspective at the moment, the technologies at best at being able to figure out something that's deep fake or not will monitor people's blood flow in the face in a video. And it'll be able to tell you that's a deep fake or that's not, even though, you know, to the human eye, it won't be it won't be there. We have got some degree of AI uh, tools that can look at, you know, some sense of patterns when within ai writing or whether something has been produced by an ai or not so there'll there'll be development within that and i think yeah uh, the the biggest thing is we're going to be moving into a world where the walls between our virtual material worlds are almost entirely eroded um that's going to be a world that we all need to be able to make sense of you know there's a little bit of a star wars kind of you're talking to your c-3po and you're acting as if it's you know no other difference than any other entity that's within that universe um and you kind of have the same thing you know with alexa at the moment you don't really think about oh well it's a a technology you have that interaction you go well it's it's there it does the thing that i expect i don't think oh well from a digital perspective that's me talking from my material world to a virtual world and that virtual world is then impacting my appliances around the house which is my physical world because they're almost indistinguishable from each other 
And that's going to continue to move along. And what we really need to do is support people to make sense of that journey, to have a say in that journey, to uh, basically embolden people to go, actually, I need to be able to lend my voice to this because I think I've got some insight or perspective that's useful to be able to share. And going back to the scrolling on phones and everything and this, you know, almost a potential opportunity for an age of enlightenment with it is I think a lot of people spend time on games, phones, because the realities of of working in the industrial world isn't really that stimulating. You know, you, you there's an escapism that's required from it. So you go onto a phone, you go onto a game to be able to escape from that reality. If you've got AI and, and your Web3 and your metaverse aspects underpinning lots of your society, maybe people wouldn't be as prone to wanting to be able to escape it all the time. Maybe if they were doing things that weren't, you know, data entry, updating a database that they didn't find meaningful, that they would do more meaningful pursuits. But there's not often a lot of opportunity when you've done your nine to five, you've done your data entry for the day to then go, hey, I'm going to spend every evening doing something that's meaningful to me. I'm going to do something that feels inherently sparking to me. You go, I want to be able to turn off. I need to be able to wind down and then get ready for engaging with that next thing the next day. So it could be a, a new opportunity. So let's take the the metaverse as a segue. So we actually first met when you you helped uh, myself and Elliot Gold from WorkLife. We put on what we still believe to be the UK's first real estate metaverse event, and it was awesome and lots of fun. It was sort of peak pandemic, uh, and it was my first time experiencing you know a purpose built metaverse, and I was blown away by it. And this was again maybe two years ago. It was before the new Quest headsets came out. It was when spatial still had no legs. Uh, you know, it was it felt like a, a long time ago. And it was impossible not to see how compelling it could be. And even if you were a doubter in the short term, and I think anyone now who's who's in the current sort of bare Web3 market, builders are still building and there'll still be there will still be stuff coming out in the future. So I felt there was an, an, an impossibility that, that, that this would materialize in a meaningful way in the near term future. As somebody who ran workshops or had intended to in the physical sense, and somebody's become a real expert in building them in a in a digital sense, what have been your key findings from this? And I, I know you alluded to how you can be more uh, more engaging, maybe around your diversity, but also those who with physical disabilities. Uh, what are your findings, and how do you think that will impact the workspace, the office market, jobs, how businesses run? Hundred percent, yeah. It, really interesting aspects when it comes to the metaverse. And it would, if I was looking at these technologies and the impact that I think they would have in the order that I think they're going to have them, is AI has immediate impact right now. It is a technology that is actually we've had for a decent amount of time that is now just becoming more widely available, and the models are coming becoming more complex in the way we can interact with them is is better so we've got ai that's going to go hey your business needs to come up with your ai strategy right now your next is your web3 you know we need to be able to underpin that with with decentralization we need to be able to look at that transparency people want to be able to know the things that they're buying the production chain that goes with it the value of it and it gives value to digital assets which is something that we need to be able to have to work in a digital world is to go this data can be protected and has value because of that protection and transparency around it. And we can prove ownership. And then you've got metaverse, which is your virtual worlds. So what I would say when it comes to these virtual world aspects is the technology is, it needs to be almost much more complex than our, our databases and our, our, our sorry, our, our web three and our AI, 
because we're talking about a level of immersion there where we are tricking your nervous system into believing what you perceive as some degree of real. And when we're looking at that from the education perspective, we're talking about a technology that's engaged with for 36% longer than 2D content and has a 26% higher emotional reaction than 2D content, which is amazing if you're going, hey, I want to be able to engage people in training, Zoom fatigue, we haven't been able to get everybody to the office, all of this kind of stuff. Well, actually, we can create something here where you can feel immersed, where you can feel a sense of connection, something that is potentially below a in-person event, but higher than a digital a Zoom call. And, and that it gives us more flexibility with our functionality that's there. And that's an amazing opportunity to start going, well, why let's bring back the high street, but it's a virtual high street. And this is why Nike and Adidas are all investing in buying virtual real estate and building virtual stores. It's going, well, we don't need to have somebody come to a physical store to be able to go and purchase our goods. They can walk around a virtual store, do it from the sense of the living room, pick it on, try on the trainers from an augmented point of view, go, yeah, that works for me. Even something like Ikea, why would I go to a physical Ikea store to go and look at things and get lost on the map when I can do that in a virtual reality headset? Okay, you know what? I really like the look of that couch. That couch, let me augment it. Let me just bring it out of the virtual store, put it into my living room. I've got the exact dimensions. Does it look the way that I'd like? Yeah, actually, that's that's great. I'm going to purchase that straight away. So you've you've got this sense of being able to build these virtual spaces um, that are, can be really as much as somebody can uh, can imagine. Like that is the only limitation is our imagination on it, where we can defy the laws of physics, where we can build things that are more accessible. If we're thinking about workplaces and, and people going back to work, why would I spend a ridiculous amount of money having an office in central London for some chance interactions? At the moment, most offices are maybe... 25% full on a good day um, when I can build a virtual office that's custom made that people can access on demand that we can still have those chance interactions but we can do things that we couldn't even possibly imagine before and have this entire virtual real estate to be able to go to and engage with our clients particularly if we're thinking about a globalized workforce like we have people joining organizations from all over the world now what's the point of having an office based in one single space because we're probably not having our our connections with the the majority of people that we have in that who we engage with in that virtual world when you, when you look at the data around number of individuals accessing many of the online metaverses you know it 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 can be it can be scatty of course there are some the way we track that is also itself a bit uh scatty in itself and so but nevertheless it hasn't got maybe the numbers one thought it would do particularly in the market right now if you look at maybe the what you hear around the internal leaks around horizons within Facebook, you get the impression the adoption isn't there either. Would it be fair to say that at present, the metaverse experiences feel useful either in one-on-one interactions, you and I could actually have this meeting in space and that'd be quite cool, or in, in, in an environment that might have made this feel a bit more interactive, or they're useful for things that you do, which are event-based things, because you can control the environment specifically because I'm wondering whether an office, if you looked at a lot of the, when, when the new Quest headset came out with the augmented bits, they, they were trying to mm -hmm. show you know, how your desk can expand and more screens and, you, and your key. That still feels quite far. Somebody in a headset for a prolonged period of time still feels quite far away, both from a, from a harder perspective, but also I think from a behavioral perspective. So mm -hmm. if we agree the path is going towards more 
time spent in virtual world. Of course, it requires more hardware, more affordability, uh, more places to engage. So therefore, is it a case that actually it's the event space feels? But also, we, we saw also in the pandemic, the virtual gigs and, you know, artists having, you know, whereas an arena is finite in its capacity, the metaverse is unlimited. And that's where NFTs became quite compelling as well, where you could get uh, NFT uh, items for the show. And you mentioned before, and this is the word I can never say properly, the interoperability of mm-hmm. your your avatars. That all, and the gaming first feels very where it's at. I feel we'll, we'll be led by the gaming community. So do you really think the office in the near future is can can be replaced or is that still quite mid to long term i would say that the metaverse generally is mid to long term so even when you think about adoption and events and stuff like that i would go cool these are some things that we can already do quite easily and also asynchronously a lot of the time when people think virtual worlds they're going oh i need to design something that is you know everyone we can have all these people in the same space at the same time but if you're going hey we're doing an onboarding training for people and we want well, they're new to our organization and what we want them to be able to do is walk around a virtual office have hr presentations maybe you know facilitated by ai so you can ask questions and stuff like that as well to your, your hr representative trained on a data source of you know your organization and the information you give into it like that's great i can send that to someone before their first day in the office and they can have those kind of interactions and that's maybe not quite there yet but will be within the next six months seven months um so cool i can have this amazing facilitated virtual world the the what i think will lead is i don't think there's anything i think you when you're looking at the website and you're looking at everything we use for online interaction now will have a virtual world element to it i think your business will have a website and a virtual world and why wouldn't you? Because if you look at website clicks, you measure how much time someone spends on a website in milliseconds. If I look at it from a point of view of a virtual world, I know people are going to spend far more time in there. They're going to explore it. And we're even, I've talked to organizations at the moment that are designing the neuro, um, the, the neuro recording aspects of virtual worlds where it is measuring where people look, what they spend their time looking at. So instead of having click rates like you've got on a website, what you'll have is vision areas where you can go, I can see they spent 10 minutes looking at this logo over here and they found that stimulating. So I know that logo is in the right place, but now nobody keeps going to the meditation room. So I might need to change the directions to be able to take people there. And it it just reflects the, the digital world that we're going into to be able to go, why would I interact with the digital world through a monitor, through a phone, which feels almost is a window into the virtual world. I have my physical world. I have my ver- window into a virtual world like we're communicating now um, when I can have something that's far more immersive or overlaid over my f- physical world. Let's not forget the the impact of augmented reality within this space at the moment, because I feel like augmented reality is your gateway drug into the, the metaverse, yeah. really, where you go, well, why would I carry around a phone with me and I've got all my running stuff on it when I want that as a heads up display when I'm running around the park? You know, I want to be able to do a zombie game where I'm being chased around the park by zombies and that encourages me to speed up rather than listen to that game on my phone. I can have it in front of me and see these zombies coming out from all over the place. Like there's so much opportunity there to to look at that erosion between those those worlds and how it can be beneficial. So will the offices be happening next week? Maybe not, but for events, conferences, that's going to be very near term. 
Um, and I don't see offices being that far behind. Well, Accenture have already developed an, an nth floor for their office. Why wouldn't you have a virtual space for people to meet in? What's been the most compelling or validating feedback you've had from things you've run in the past year that have indicated that this is, it's, it is, it's a when, it, it's not an if. Has anything happened that has been a real like light bulb moment for you? Yeah, I think from a metaverse perspective, the we put on a, a virtual conference um, and it had 50 people in attendance. It was an organization that's a global workforce. They don't have a physical location. So essentially, I designed the whole of their conference space and it was custom built. They had, you know, all of their branding, all of their logos across it, different rooms that were tailored for different events based on the models that they deliver and the values of the organization. And we designed them all, you know, in this custom way so they could go and do breakout spaces. They had people in a VR headset for three days, 50 people. And by the first day you go, people get used to it. There's the learning curve of understanding this kind of space. But by the third day, you have people knowing how to create their own rooms, create their own portals. They were creating artwork. Somebody came in early to do a sculpture that they wanted to be able to make using a VR headset. And the feedback that you had from people is like, this created an emotional experience that was on par with when we've gone to physical location. In fact, because it's digital and because we've all been learning something together, that's an experience as well. Um, And particularly engaging with it in a virtual space. But the takeaways from that is they can still use that virtual conference hall. They can still look at all the information they put up, post-it notes they put on the wall, and they can jump back in there anytime. They can use their models and go, well, we talked to people about this all the time, but let's go and put everything up on the red wall or the yellow wall or the green wall based on the models that we've got to be able to, to come back and design these different projects. And I think for me, that's the the epitome of of, of probably where it's at and and the experiences that you can create but there's a huge education piece that needs to be done going back to what's scary at the moment is nobody's helped anyone else make sense of this world like nobody has given you any frame of reference you know your boss i say your boss this is maybe a bit ageist on this point but i was like your boss still thinks all of the other windows disappear when they open up one window you're like no they're still there you just need to get you know you they've got you've got to teach a generation of people who are not necessarily digital natives to be able to use this technology the flip side of that is you've got a younger generation coming through that is used to having user focused technology where you don't need to know where the C drive is because you just type in what you want to be able to have. You don't need to know all the root files and everything. And they're going into the workforce and they're experiencing tech shaming at the moment by, by people within that space, because there's an assumption that they know how to use digital technology like that, but actually they've not used a, a system that operates in the, in the workforce and, and had to use these kind of tools in that way. So there's a real kind of disconnect between the digital skills that people have and the expectations that we have of each other, and then the world that we're going into, which is such a digital, digitally enabled world. And it does become, back to your kind of earlier point, the, the difference between the haves and the have-nots is a bit of a running joke within the AI community, which is your job won't be taken by AI, but it's likely to be taken by someone who knows AI, because that's the difference between being able to do this. So we want to be able to make sure we're skilling everybody in an equitable way um, to be able to bring people into the workforce. You and I have never met in person, mm-hmm. and we may never meet in person. Mm-hmm. Oh, geez, somebody who... <laughs> <laughs> we may not. 
And the yeah. question is, does it does it matter anymore? And and as somebody who 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 works from home majority of the time and is, is far more efficient at home, one can't uh, ignore the fact there's definitely a, a difference in seeing people in person. And I'm wondering whether we are through automation, through AI, and through Web three, and through VR and AR, we we are slowly encouraging sometimes tacitly other times overtly to push people into worlds where human interaction becomes uh a secondary requirement rather than a primary we're all very social creatures but part of historically so our social interactions have always been physical and whether we will simply evolve and derive the same benefit from virtual interactions or whether or not we'll still need the the physical and i think what you saw a lot were parents with young children during covid and then you watch them go back to school, there was a, a an inability or a, a regression in how children interacted, the social skills. Does it worry you that potentially generationally we'll get to a point where social skills become uh, no longer required, but if they are acquired, no, long, no longer proficiently exercised by people, particularly when you can surround yourself by AI bots who are tailored towards your needs and you can you surround by yes men the whole time? Yeah, I mean, it, it will be, uh, I'm not necessarily worried per se. The way that I look at the world that we're going into is we will need to help people to take their place in that world. And if it is a case of, from a social interaction point of view, that has been changed as it has been many times. Like we could say the same thing about people moving into cities or, you know, our, our more metropolitan area. You know, were we happier in villages with small amount of 50, uh, people and, you know, 50 people to communicate with? Did we you know, survive when we went into the cities? Did it change our interaction? Does it still make some people feel overwhelmed today and some people feel completely elated by it? Like you'll have a whole range of lived experiences based on that and, and fitting in within that kind of world. The difference is we'll be able to shape that world in a very different way than we can do at the moment. Um, and for me, that that leads an opportunity to go, some people aren't as social as others, you know? That a lot of, we go back to kind of the marginalization that people experience. 76% of the autistic population are, are unemployed. Over 25% of the dyslexic population are unemployed. You know, our, our workplaces and our society suits those who are middle, who can mask as middle class and neurotypical. You know, we, we, we live in, we're going to go into a world where actually the skills of some neurodiverse people are going to be highly sought after, but they might not have been able to participate otherwise. And this is where we start to look at participation and can it can it that erosion between our our physical and our virtual worlds actually lead to more participation for people who weren't able to participate beforehand so there's always a flip side from from that perspective um i also think that there's kind of yeah a lot of a lot of chance for people to start to think about what how they want to shape the world that they're moving into really uh there was another point that i feel that you brought up there and i haven't answered it if you want to recap me i'll do my best <laughs> no it might have got, i might have got lost in my ramblings i can't remember i think you, you hit the main ones uh okay. a question then the follow-up we exist now in a world where there was a great a good example I was on twitter and somebody who said oh you know i i i believe that i'm a fairly uh online person and i'm connected but it turns out that my 16 year old told me about someone called dream. And mm -hmm. so this person called dream was a, is uh, a gamer 
and he he was uh made his career on twitch and uh playing playing games and he wore a mask the whole time and he did he did a big face reveal online and it was a few maybe like 15 million people watched him reveal his face um and what this guy was saying was it's amazing how because of the channels i operate in that content never fed into my world, yeah. Because I operate mm-hmm. on being the, the business one or the, or the tech one or the gaming and young social culture. Young culture didn't enter my my vertical of consumption. And even now, in the same vein, when I talk to friends or peers around AI or Web three, uh, there's a massive delta in knowledge. And I'm like, oh, how do you not know about that? It's, it's everywhere, but it's not everywhere. It's everywhere in my feed, in in what's been curated for me. So realistically, given that we are now again to the earlier point we consume based on what we're fed and it takes a lot of proactivity to to change that feed to give you a more a broader sense of the world how do we get more people to be aware of what's happening because i know to you it may be second nature or maybe not but to a lot of people it's a million miles away and they don't even know it's happening like it's a what, what do you mean ChatGPT was different that was i think a big trigger point but don't forget there was chat gp3 before there was even dali before that and nothing has quite hit where we are now so how do we encourage people and what do we do to get people more involved and engaged so i think there's two questions there the first one is around you know people people's experience of reality and that has always been very varied i had i was having a conversation with my partner the other day and, and we in a very uh very typical uh household conversation we're watching the simpsons and it was about a time where bart's beethoven and she was like you know what why why do they beethoven's obviously still recognized today and there's a huge you know a huge aspect of music that we contribute and think about with beethoven but why don't they produce like classical music anyone it's like emmy they do produce classical music it's still out there like it depends in the circles that you travel in you know when you even if you're talking to that original beethoven music it would have been listened to by the upper echelons of society, but it wasn't going to be your, your average Joe blogs on the street who knew about Beethoven and his work and everything. Like there's always been circles of, of influence where we have information and, and that's some of the biggest barriers in society is going, you know, we've always said it, it's not necessarily what you know, but who you know. Um, and, you know, that's been a, a huge impact on on how we shape our realities around it. So I don't feel like that's necessarily any different. It doesn't mean that there isn't still challenges there to resolve um, or that there is a potential, you know, an escalation. And it can be that on steroids when you go, well, the information you receive, you can entirely tailor to, to what you want to be able to see, what you want to be able to hear. Um, and, you know, that's definitely got its challenges. The second part of that was going, well, how do we make sure that everyone has more of a participation in it? Um and this is where we have to re- we ha- the meaningful part for me is going well how how can we make sure that progress my big belief is progress isn't progress if the same people are always benefiting okay so how, how can we make sure that when there's an inception of new technology those who face the greatest adversity can leverage it quickest to be able to support them which is why i look at a lot of accessibility you know being dyslexic and having chat gpt there to help me write emails is a huge advantage to me because otherwise it could have been something that I experienced more marginalization because it takes me longer to write an email. So it can be a great equalizer from that perspective. But now it's a case of, well, we do need to re-envision the curriculum, but we need to do far more than that. We have to look at our, our societal structures and start answering the questions of going, okay, what does it mean to participate in a digital world? And how can we 
give people the information they need to do it. And that's what we had from a school perspective. You know, we got taught the basics of what we needed to be able to do to live in an industrial world. And maybe part of the falling out with regulate with uh, education and, and how it has impacted people is it's become less and less effective as the world's moved further and further along. So we need to reinvent our education systems to help provide people with the skills they need to participate digitally. So you're someone who who is obviously out of school, but is going through a constant uh, journey of uh, constant self-education. Share some of the, the life hacks that you're using daily that you found transformative. Uh, as somebody who is both technical and savvy and business orientated, how is technology supercharging? You are your asset to a degree. Mm-hmm. Historically, you are not scalable, yet you're achieving scale through automation. Can you sort of share some of those life hacks you're using that are making you be in more places at once than you can? Sure. First one, Zapier. Automation, best way to be able to go about it. So Zapier is an application that allows you to integrate things like your social media feeds into to one part of production. So I automate 20 tasks in my business. On average, that completes 750 outputs every month. If each of those outputs takes me five minutes, that means on an average month, it creates 61 hours worth of work for me. Uh, so I, I don't work four weeks anymore. I will work five and a half um, just by having those things automated. So, you know, if it comes to communicating with people through a social feed, I only post to one place and it posts to all of my channels. And if, the, if you get good at doing automation, you'll teach the automation how to reformat it for each of your channels. Hugely beneficial. Best thing you can do to save time. Even if it comes down to your organization, you know, you look at a CRM that has automation attached to it. You don't have to have all these manual tasks of sending out an email backwards and forwards. Um, And that kind of leads me on to the second one, which is automated calendar software. So I use Calendly, you can use HubSpot, but I don't want to go backwards and forwards with people going, when are you free? No, I'm not free then. What about that week? Let me set up a meeting link. I'll send it across. Huge dead air. Like get a Calendly tool. It will be integrated with your calendar. Get somebody to be able to go and select the appointments that they want. Fantastic. That will save you so much time and effort. And then it's around prompt engineering. So uh, if I was to give an example, I uh, when I do my social po- posts for news feeds, I use AI to help me write it. And I do that because I've taught my AI systems how to digest information in the way that I like it to be digested and then be able to send it out as well. Um, so it's can really we carry on, can you, can, you, can you talk yeah. to that? Because most people now would have tried chat gtp and they just see it as a a chat bot they can ask questions to but there's there's a lot more nuance and there's a lot more you can do through it can you can you talk through the training element and how that works sure so when i talk about prompt engineering what we're discussing is how do you get an ai to produce the outcome that you want in natural language so i'll use an example um i i work on a model called whole brain thinking and the way that whole brain thinking works is it splits your brain into four quadrants you've got a what are we doing how are we doing it who's going to be impacted and why why is it important to go about it as a very you know non-nuanced overview so what i want but i design resources for this all the time where i can apply that to different things so let's say it's buying a new car i want to apply whole brain thinking to it and maybe in the past i'll spend half a day going right so the the considerations i have are the financial the impact, whether it's going to lose value, whether I need to insure it, who's going to be insured on it. And you would go through all of these different aspects. Now, using a prompt, what I've done is go, right, 
GPT, you are a whole brain model and you split the brain into four quadrants. These four quadrants are your analytical, your practical, your, your relational and your strategic. This is what I want you to consider for all of them. Using that information, if you being that model, I want you to apply that model to this topic and then produce it with this format, which is a relational heading, uh, an emoji, a question mark, an emoji, a question mark, an emoji, a question, an emoji, a question. And I want you to generate 20 questions that are holistic from that perspective. Now, because I've taught that prompt, what it is, I told it it's the whole brain model and told it how to apply itself and the format that I want of the answer. All I need to do now is I've built it into one of our chatbots. I pre type in the subject, which basically completes the prompt. If I go, how do you apply it, apply it to this topic? Input, and then it generates the response. That would have been something that might have taken me half a day now to, to produce those kind of resources. Now it takes me 20 seconds. And that's not through knowing coding. That's not through being, you don't necessarily need to be technical to be able to do that. What you need to know is how to explain the problem that you want it to solve in a specific way that it's going to understand. And that takes a bit of finessing as well. You don't get it just on the first time. Like it made me took me a couple of hours to write out a prompt where I was like, right, I'm consistently getting the response that I want now. Um, and that's how you really can kind of start to build those AI systems is look at the prompts to get the outcomes that you want. And all I do when I'm building into my chatbot is I slide that in invisibly into the completion before this the statement around what am I applying it to. So it's all just an invisible bit propped in, ChatGPT understands it, produces the output. So that is to say now that if you and I both brought our ChatGPT to the table and asked a similar question, mine in an untrained capacity, I guess you've got a, a World Cup athlete, I've got a Sunday league sort of uh, player because they haven't been trained. So we're all coaches in a way. The better we train our assistants, the more able they are to complete the tasks. So to excel, we need to invest in ourselves, invest in understanding how to get the best out of our colleague, which is this AI tool. And there's always a famous when I was doing my IT GCSE, it was rubbish in, rubbish out. Same thing. If we don't ask the right things with the right prompts, if we don't understand the way the AI is working, we won't get the best results. So is that to say then, does your... First of all, has yours got a name? Have you named your assistant, your chat? Have you, have you, have you yeah, named I've, it? I've got YT, named after a character in Snow Crash, which is the where the book, where the... Okay, the founding metaverse, lovely. Yeah, yeah. So YT, how would you feel if I came over one day, if we ever met in person, and I was able to like just delete all of your past searches and delete the learning? Do you reckon within a few years' time, you're going to build a relationship Obviously, you know you know it's AI, but would you feel a sense of loss if over a few years' time you've built and it because it knows you, it knows how to respond to Jamie, it knows how to format it. Would it be purely, oh, I've lost time and effort because I, and I need to re retrain something, or do you think like part of you would have lost some part of someone? For me personally. I don't think I would feel a sense of loss other than going, well, that's time energy. But also I, I think I have to be prepared for, I'm working with the technology as quickly as it comes out. Okay. Like, and not many people in a place to be able to do that. So I will learn it, develop it, produce something, but also with the understanding that 
I'm probably going to have to redevelop it again in nine months anyway. You know, it works for now and it does what I need it to. But as it's still using the GPT-3 Turbo, we've already got GPT-4. You know, if I want it to do more complex tasks, I'm going to have to build on top of that. I'll probably have to rebuild it and rebuild it and rebuild it in the same way that we've had to do with our websites. We don't feel particularly attached to our website. You know, we end up having to update it and redevelop it and use, you know, the new coding that's out there and the new aesthetics of the time that we're in. Um, so I don't, I see it very much as a tool and I see it as a way of being able to, do, the reason I've given the agent a name to be able to do it is because there's lots of different agents that I've built into it and it just helps me to identify which agent is doing what thing. Um, but I use YT as my, my, my reception desk, basically. And it kind of it's kind of interacting in the same way that you do with you know your your Jarvis in Iron Man. Like it it it's a it's more of a hey, I want to be able to produce something. I need you to do this, I need you to do that. And kind of going back to your other question on training and stuff, is I think one of the advantages that I have is not the digital skills. Okay, it it does help for sure. One of the advantages I have is I've been onboarding people for the majority of my career. I've been working with people to help them understand new systems, new processes, new organizations, you know, taking people through tech training, taking people through, um, you know, the anxieties of joining a new organization. What can you say to, to support someone on that journey? And that's all a prompt engineering of, of human engineering, really. You know, what can I say that's going to help someone when they come into an organization? What do they need to know? What information is going to be beneficial to them? And then being able to go, well, I can give that same kind of advice but i just need to put it in a language that a machine understands and it's not that different you know the same prompt that i used to train on whole brain thinking it's the same thing that i would tell a human being that i was talking about to explain whole brain thinking as well so it really depends on going back to maybe some of the people skills bit you know it, i've worked with managers who haven't spoken to their employees for a year and a half because they had a falling out okay and haven't made any sense they've not had any contact with them since then it's like right so You've got that level of, of you know, disillusionment and not willing to connect and not willing to deal with discomfort and not willing to support. And people have the same thing with, with AI tools. If you're not willing to put in the effort to figure out how to be able to talk to it or what its learning style is or what it responds to or what it doesn't, you're going to get crap out anyway. So you might as well learn how to be able to support that thing in the right way that it needs and adapt your style to be able to meet that in order to get the outcome that you want. So I see it as being very interchangeable, those two skills. I guess what's nice are people who've been sitting on the fence wondering whether or not AI is wonderful, terrifying, you know, in you. It's somebody who's, who's giving you time back, who's giving you, it is giving you the ability to do more, and in your case, more good, uh, challenge yourself more, be more influential, get your voice out more. And I guess the onus is now on everybody to do it themselves. And I think the biggest losers in this whole Web3 AI world are the ones with the heads in the sand and actually at least at this point it is still fair game it feels that actually for those who put the effort in it is equal opportunity because it is so nascent and so new and so developing I think the ones who choose either ignorance or fear or, or apathy to not engage they're the ones who are going to suffer in the future so you are in an example a light onto the world as to what is achievable if we engage change uh <laughs> we challenge the status quo and make the effort to improve how we operate so thank you for sharing your, your wisdom and insight and i know a lot of people have been inspired uh, by what you're doing and hopefully compelled to take the first steps into the metaverse take their first steps into ai um, and begin to at least question 
what their plan is as an individual or what role the organizations uh, will have in these uh, imminent technology so thank you very much for your time and i uh, hope everyone follows jamie on his channels which you now know is done automated you know is automatically posted to but makes it no no less compelling uh on the contrary makes it even more compelling so please do follow him and engage with his content because there's a lot to be learned so jamie thank you so much for your time today and best of luck uh on your ever 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 growing journey thank you very much it was a really interesting conversation and and thanks for the invite and there's yeah, as I said, lots of opportunities, even if we're thinking Web3 to be able to go, you know, people who are marginalized by centralized structures, being able to participate through decentralized ones. Like, look it up, guys. This is why I tend to target my support at, at people who don't normally have the opportunities that are there. But I think there's a massive opportunity for everyone. Wise words. Jamie, you're the best. Thank you. Cheers, Michael. Thank you for listening to Pixel Chasing and well done for making it right to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode, feel free to share with others who you think might also enjoy it. And to be kept up to date with all they're up to here, you can always follow us on the usual channels. On Twitter, we are at Pixel Chasing. On Instagram, we are at Pixel Chasing. And if you want to join our newsletter to be kept up to date with all future episodes, you can join that on our website, which is pixelchasing.com. Thank you. See you next time.